This is Our American Stories, and we got a great crew here, and we try to feature their work as often as we can. And one of our favorite segments is Jesse's World, and it's that time. In order to protect African cows from ravenous lions, Australian researchers have begun painting eyes on the rear end of cows. Lions are ambush predators, and they rely on stealth and the element of surprise in order to bring down their prey. As soon as they lose that element of surprise, as soon as the prey sees them, they abandon their hunt. That's why Dr. Neil Jordan and his fellow researchers are going to Botswana to paint eyes on cows' rumps. They hope it'll prove a low-cost way to protect livestock from lions and lions from being killed by farmers in retaliation. Dr. Jordan trialed his idea, which he calls Eye Cow, last year with promising results. The researchers stamped painted eyes under the butts of one-third of a herd of 62 cattle, making sure their eyes were large, easily visible, and potentially intimidating. While three unpainted cows were killed by lions... All the painted cows survived to graze another day. If successful, iCow would be an affordable tool for farmers. Losing one cow costs five times as much as painting a herd of 60 cattle. Livestock auctioneers spit some dope rhymes in glorious rap mashups. Watch out, Jay-Z. These livestock auctioneers are coming for your hip-hop crown. Vine user Auctioneer Beats, also known as Graham Haven Rich from Chicago, has mashed up a bunch of the animal sellers' tight rhymes over some rap beats. The auctioneer's natural cadence and flow, which according to Modern Farmer magazine, they pick up at a special training school, Fuse perfectly with the music. If animals were meant to cover rock and roll hits, they probably would have been born with better singing voices. But thankfully for us, that doesn't stop Insane Cherry. The YouTube channel returns with another creature dubbed masterpiece, Joan Osborne's One of Us. Splicing in barks, meows, hee-haws, and other beastly sounds from internet videos, Insane Cherry has also rendered Queen's We Will Rock You and Linkin Park's Numb. Watching the animals in Insane Cherry's latest ask, what if God was one of us, takes rock and roll theology to a whole new level. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Thank you for that, Jesse. And by the way, who gets the job of painting the cow butt? That's what I want to know. And do they kick cows like horses? I mean, because you're not supposed to get behind a horse. I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) Well, that brings us to another segment. And by the way, I love Joan Osborne. And now I can never think of her the same way again, (laughs) Jesse. I can never think of that song. By the way, written by Eric Bazalian of the Hooters. Uh, that song. I don't know if you know that. Oh, now I do. Well, now you do. There you go. And now we want to talk about one of our favorite beats, because our friends over at NPR do some really decent and actually sometimes admirable storytelling, but they also do it in a way that you'll truly find, well, well, you'll find it only on NPR the way they do it, which we love to bring you in our regular series called Only on NPR. For today's report, 
Our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brings you their coverage on the topic of the minimum wage, which they dedicated a week of coverage to. Here's Alex. Good day to you, and welcome to All Things Considered, a show where we talk very softly and right into the mic. Do you hear that? I'm whispering right in your ear. I'm right in your ear. Buzz, 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 buzz. That was Family Guy's take on NPR. And here's the real deal. Their host, Jeremy Hobson. All this week, we're looking at the issue of the minimum wage and whether it should be raised from the current $7.25 an hour at the federal level. But is NPR really posing a question as professional journalists? Or are they just pretending to and really giving us all answers as activists? Let's take a listen. Each day this week, as part of our series, we're going to hear from a different worker making at or near minimum wage. NPR started off by speaking with Bridget Hughes, who works at Wendy's. She began there at 16 years old, making $7.25 an hour, and now at 25, makes $8.75. Is there any hope for you to get a raise uh, just within the company without the government coming in and saying we're raising the minimum wage? Bridget says there are promotion opportunities, but... You know, for whatever reason, haven't gotten there yet. She says for whatever reason, as if it's unknown. But in the same interview, she details the reasons. I have been considered for promotions before, but have been uh, told uh, I was too emotional. I've been told that somebody was more qualified, you know, various reasons. NPR failed to follow up on this inconsistency. And worse, they failed to celebrate The good news that Bridget herself recognizes there is a path for her to greater opportunity and to higher pay. I am working towards getting promoted within the company. In all of NPR's storytelling during minimum wage week, not once did they tell the story of someone who started at the minimum wage and climbed up that ladder of opportunity. Not once. They just couldn't bring themselves to do it. But here at Our American Stories, we don't have such bashfulness. You're bashful. Here's one of our stories last year with an Indian immigrant named Daljeet Hundal, who at 19 years old started working at Carl's Jr. I took that job. I worked part-time as a cook, making minimum wage at night just to pay my bills. The minimum wage was around $2 an hour back then. And as I was going through school, uh, trying to work full-time and that, the opportunity came up with Carl's to get into their training program. And, uh, and, and, and become a manager eventually. So um, I did that. I was a shift manager, then an assistant manager, and, and then uh, I became a general manager of a restaurant uh, in 1978. And then about two and a half years after that, I was a district manager, and a couple years after that, I was promoted to a regional director of operations. Daljeet now owns 16 Carl's Jr. franchises. And 14 Jama Juices, the same guy who started at $2 an hour. And when we come back after these messages, more on our Only at NPR Minimum Wage series, the story they didn't tell. This is Our American Stories, and we continue 
with our field correspondent Alex Cortez's experience spending some time, actually, with NPR and their minimum wage coverage. They spent a week on this, and let's pick up where we left off. Daljeet now owns 16 Carl's Jr. franchises and 14 Jamba Juices, the same guy who started at $2 an hour. And this isn't some cherry-picked, isolated story. Here's yet another about a minimum wage worker that we told that NPR wouldn't. Uh, you know, I came in this country in 1990 from Bangladesh. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Bangladesh is a very poor country, and I came in this country, first of all, I was in culture shock. I had no clue what was going on here. Uh, and second of all, the problem was I didn't speak any English. So, you know, I started looking at a job, nobody would hire me. You know, I was, it was a very, very bad situation in my life. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden I walked into a White Castle restaurant in Elmhurst, Queens, New York. And I had this conversation with this gentleman named Eugene Miller. And I told, you know, I, I sort of communicated my, uh, uh, my situation with him with broken language. One word here, one word there. And luckily my sister-in-law was here with me. And she was able to help me express myself what my situation is. And Mr. Miller was very kind. He actually offered me a job on the spot. He said, hey, listen, you can come and join our team. You really don't need English to cook hamburgers. That's what my sister sister-in-law told me in my own language. Uh, you are more than welcome to join. And I was able to join that location. If White Castle was not there, I probably wouldn't be here today. Like Daljeet Hundal, Jahangir Kabir worked his way up. I had a desire to learn and learn English. So once I learned really English good, uh, I was able to move up within the company. I became an instructor, I became a crew manager, I became a general manager. Right now I'm a district manager running eight locations in New York City. Step by step, adding those qualifications that the Wendy's employee NPR interviewed said her bosses were looking for. But that NPR made sound like an impossible dream. Like the government is her only savior. Next, NPR spoke with Jane McGinn, owner of Sweet Jane's Ice Cream Shop in Astoria, Queens, in New York City, Sweet Jane. and asked her this question. And they're making what at this point, in terms of money? How much money do they make? For NPR, it's all about the money they make, and not at all about the experience, the relationships, and the wisdom they get too, which NPR didn't ask about a single time. And all of which can become more valuable than money itself, as you'll often hear about on the hit show Shark Tank. You have the business experience and the knowledge that I lack. Many entrepreneurs actually want the experience, the relationships, and the wisdom of the sharks more than they even want the money. But not NPR. How much money do they make? In Cash. Jane had constructed this beautiful ladder of opportunity that was available to all of her employees. And yet NPR failed to mention how a $15 minimum wage would deconstruct this very ladder. Suddenly, the higher qualified person who was making $13 an hour is making the same amount as the brand new hire who was making $9.50 an hour. How is that fair? It's not fair! It's not fair! And if we're all equal, why even work harder? And take that next step on the ladder if there's no reward. The business owner might not be able to afford creating such a tiered ladder that's higher than $15 an hour. Or they may just not hire inexperienced workers at all and have to solely rely on the experienced workers whose productivity they know will guarantee a return on investment at $15 an hour. Learn it. 
Know it. Live it. Jane laments this prospect. The kid who's having their first job has no idea what it's like to be an employee. Um, you know, they have to learn, and somebody has to take the time to teach them that. And that's one thing that I pride myself on is, you know, someone did that for me when I was a kid. Someone did that for my daughter when, when she was a kid. And I really want to be able to offer that value to the neighborhood, the community, and those kids that need to cut their teeth so that they're great employees when they go on and, you know, do their life's dream work. Another question NPR failed to ask, why $15 an hour? How much do you think you should be making for what you're doing? 15 minimum. What's the magic in this number? Maybe there isn't any. One of their guests proposed even higher. It's money, money, money by the money, money, money. Well, what do you think you should be making for the work that you're doing? Uh, minimum wage should be somewhere around like $21. $21 an hour. Yeah. But why stop at $21 an hour? Why not 25 Why not 100 Why not 1000 You're going to have to pay me $1 million. <laughs> Why are folks being so stingy proposing $15? Sorry. Heck, why are there any limits? $100 billion. Gentlemen, silence. Businesses create a certain value for customers, a certain value that customers pay them for, and can only support a certain labor expense to stay in business at all. I wouldn't mind paying more if people wouldn't mind uh, paying more for a scoop of ice cream. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. In the world of our dreams, none of this would be an issue. The world wouldn't have limited resources. Its inhabitants would have unlimited resources at their disposal. Free ice cream. Anywhere one turned. Sounds like heaven, but back down here on Earth, in the world we live in, there's this little thing called reality. Which is still one heck of a reality, especially in this land we call the United States of America. So I went across the street, and there's a big sign in this window that said, Help one, and I walked in met a guy by the name of Ed Brown. I said, Mr. Brown, my name's Ed Renzi, and I need a job. And I got to make 85 bucks an hour a, a, day, a week, because that's my living expense. He said, well, that won't be any problem. We pay 85 cents an hour, and you could work 100 hours a week. I said, hell, I've done that all my life. That's not a problem. <laughs> done and deal. literally, I went to work for McDonald's the first month I was there, February. I worked 100 hours a week. I didn't have a car. I walked home every day. Still managed that apartment building. I'll tell you, you talk about tired. Good news was I got a free lunch and a dinner, so the, the grocery <laughs> bill was taken care of. Then they put a sign up said managers wanted, and I signed up. I said I'd like to be a manager. How much do they pay? And they said they pay ninety five dollars a week. I said I got a ten dollar raise coming, <laughs> and I only have to work seventy hours. I signed up as a manager trainee. I started February the second, nineteen sixty six, and left there in nineteen ninety nine. Ed Renzi left as the CEO of McDonald's. All the way from 85 cents an hour for 100 hours a week. Only in America. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it. Want to change the world, there's nothing to it. This has been the latest edition of our Only on NPR series. I'm Alex Cortez.
And great work on that, Alex. So nowhere in that NPR piece, not once did they, they talk about someone who rose up the ladder? Not once. I mean, our big, great research team here, just through our interviews, this is just people we've spoken to because we ask a very important question, and we love the segment, and it's called First Jobs Fridays. And from that springs all kinds of remarkable things. And we also do a non-leadership segment, and in that, we ask, of course, what do we ask? What's your first job and how much did you get paid? Anything else there? I mean, did they talk about, you know, 15, 20, 25? Did they talk about increased price of goods? I mean, was there anything about the social cost, Alex, in the NPR series uh, as it relates to minimum wage? No, not at all. Yeah, just wait till you hear the next one, Lee, about whiteness. That's whiteness? Our, that's our next one, yeah. Whiteness. I'm Lebanese yeah, the, and I'm Italian, the, so I, I can't the, wait. The privilege of whiteness. The privilege of whiteness. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. And thanks for that work, Alex, Greg, on the production, only on NPR. And this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you the full stories. And Ed Renzi's, by the way, is a part of our On Leadership series. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Listen to that. Also, listen to Brad Anderson's story. He started uh, at Best Buy, and he, as, he, as he called himself, he was a hippie who hated work. And he ended up becoming the CEO of Best Buy. Not even any commission, or not any minimum wage. He was purely commissioned. And he didn't sell anything for months. (laughs) (laughs) He tried to quit and they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't let him quit. It's a great story. And by the way, there are people who have wage issues. And there are wage issues in this country. And it's worthy of discussion. But you got to bring both sides. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And always, we do it through storytelling. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. And the subject for this segment, well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since it seems like last year in praise of the one-second pause which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it, because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we, we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one-second pause. Now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter. 
in literature. And I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class, but the Sesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And, well, what it means, well, here's the actual definition from the Poetry Archive. A sesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks, this could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A sesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Mole's Coming Home has a first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other. The fifth sentence is only half a line long, and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic cesura. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he'd just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see the same thing, called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, O my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him in God. Sesur. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Sesur. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one-second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemko, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio San Francisco radio show, and Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One Second Pause. He began his piece asking these questions. How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering and more foundational that you were taken seriously, which we all want. Well, we had our American Stories, Greg Hengler, ask Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath 
Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's answer. It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would, in a very tactful and simple way, say, I I really'd like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me, and do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it, but you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignored. And again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt the interviewer and say, to tell the interrupter, would you please stop interrupting me? But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback. We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion? It's a very different rule, and I find that uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say. At the 60-second mark, you occasionally uh, want to run a red light, which is, uh, but usually you want to stop. So I think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences because sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more. Boy, these are really good rules to live by, actually. Never really thought about that before. I think I've got like a nine-minute rule. i got to really work on this. Man. Here's Marty on a pet peeve he has involving conversation. Narcissism. Normally in a conversation, it is like a ping-pong game. You want to spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court. Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60% in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90% of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they're, but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20% of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60% of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, and not pausing. Well, so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty. But for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it. So is Marty's answer. I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question, you know, how was your day? What'd you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later. I'm like, oh man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. And I just must come off as just selfish. Well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes (laughs) not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. That stung. Greg asked for some clarity. 
So I fall into the narcissist's carrier. Well, it's too strong. I mean, okay. you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continue to blather on and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. It's, you're, you're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist. There you go, folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue and thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use in praise of the one-second pause. And don't forget, 30 seconds, green light, 45 seconds, yellow light. You go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk, you got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, from the arts to sports to history, and stories from you. And this next story comes from our own Alex Cortez. Let's take a listen. Darcy Olson is a foster care mom, which led her to become the adoptive mother of three children. And now, with her organization Generation Justice, she's fighting for the rights of children in foster care. But today, Darcy brings us back to 2011, when she was the head of an Arizona think tank called the Goldwater Institute. We had a local municipality that wanted to keep a sports franchise where it was. And in this case, it was the city of Glendale, and they wanted to keep the Coyotes hockey team in town, and they felt really strongly about that. They felt that having those Coyotes games would bring ticket holders and increase sales of ice cream and pendants and all kinds of things in the community. But the team was not profitable and was asking for a subsidy. From the government, which almost no businesses get, but a lot of professional sports teams with their wealthy owners do. The city of Glendale put together a deal where they were going to give $300 million to the Coyotes, essentially, to stay in the community. The public, many of them felt that that was not a good idea. But beyond that, the Arizona State Constitution had a prohibition that said you can't give tax dollars to a single entity like that. In other words, you know, if you spend public money, it has to be for the good of everybody. And so at the Goldwater Institute at the time, we brought that to the attention of the newspapers and to the team and and all the dealers and the politicians and simply said, if you go forward with this deal, we're not going to have any choice but to, to go to court and enforce this provision of the Arizona Constitution. And there was a lot of hue and cry about this. And before long, it was in all of the state newspapers and it was the talk of radio shows and Senator McCain was on air talking about it. And the commissioner of the NHL was talking about it live to full crowds at the stadium. And the Goldwater Institute was painted as the villain in this situation by some of these entities that stood to gain a lot of money from the taxpayers. So we were on the side of taxpayers, but publicly, it made it look like we were kind of the bad guys, you know, trying to kick this team out of the community, which, which of course, we were not trying to do. (laughs) 
one day I had my tiny little foster baby in my arms and I lived out in the desert and we would go out in to watch the sunrise and I would give her her first bottle of the day. And I walked out the front door of my home into a pool of blood. It was just all over the, the front area. And I looked down and there was a beheaded rabbit. And living in the desert, my first thought was this was a wild animal. This is just a kill and, and it was left there. And then as the fog lifted just a little bit from my early morning brain, I realized that it was a, it was a clear and clean decapitation and uh, the carcass had not been chewed up and that this had actually been intentionally left on the doorstep. And it didn't take but a second to realize that this was just one more warning that we were getting to, to stay out of this particular deal. A pretty scary warning to be personally targeted for your own home with a child in it to be trespassed upon in such a vulgar way. What was frightening about that was my home was really in, a, in an extremely rural area. And because at this time I was renting, my name wasn't even on the property paperwork, which meant that someone had followed me home. And of course I had this tiny little infant that I was in charge of. Darcy's very first foster child. And yet this harrowing experience didn't scare her off that path. That was my first one. I have many now, but... <laughs> it might have for a lot of us. And sadly, Darcy Olson's story isn't some isolated incident. Others who've simply taken public policy positions in the public square have been attacked, too. We were traveling, and a neighbor uh, told us that our house had been egged in a way that was done not the way kids do it. And frankly, kids in our area don't uh, egg, they teepee with toilet paper. But our house was egged, and also there was an attempted break-in, which fortunately was not successful. This gentleman, John Tillman, is the head of the Illinois Policy Institute, a think tank that's working on Illinois' comeback from being the state where the greatest number of its own people are fleeing. I have a 17-year-old daughter. She turns 18 at the end of this month. And a wife who is very concerned about these things and asking about her personal safety. It's a little bit sobering. You know, um... I think what, for me, what this drove home was the importance of privacy, of regular citizens being able to maintain their privacy, um, you know, when it comes to the causes that they support, the things that they believe in. The vast majority of Americans are really great people. They do a lot with their money, they pay tithes to their churches, they, you know, they support all sorts of different causes. We have such a robust private sector. And unfortunately, there are some people out there who have loose screws. And when they get a hold of that information, they can really compromise your safety and the safety of your family. And that was really 
driven home to me uh, when, when this happened. Now I was in a situation where because it was work related I could get private security and I could make sure that the baby would be okay and things like that. Now, Darcy was the head of the nonprofit Goldwater Institute, and thankfully, their financial supporters were willing to make this possible. But it's not possible for most of us. Most small businesses couldn't afford to pay for private security for an employee and aren't especially interested in paying for it either. Given that speaking out about the government isn't their actual business that takes care of their families. So the rest of us, when we speak out about government issues, could be even more at risk than Darcy and John were. And clearly, it's not an easy thing for them, either. Somebody like me who's engaged in a public battle, uh, you know, comes with the territory, as my daughter once told me. Dad, you asked for this, so you got to man up and toughen up. Uh, she was nine at the time, and I thought that was very good advice. But think about the person who, um, you know, might have an employer who might not agree with their political views, either on the left or the right, or somebody who goes to a church but feels that some of the teachings of that church aren't in keeping with them, and they want to advocate for, oh, it could be for gay rights or traditional marriage, either side. In U.S. history, we have a really long tradition of having robust discussions of all kinds of contentious issues. We go all the way back to slavery, for instance, or the 19th Amendment and, you know, the right of women to vote and you name it. And people have always been contentious. But, you know, when you have, like you have today, you have people who are just not quite in the rational game and they can't appreciate that discussion for what it is and... Instead of discussion, what they want to do is intimidate or threaten or maim. It becomes critical that we have those privacy protections built in. That is critical to a free society. Privacy protections that allow us to speak out about the affairs of government. In newspapers, advertisements, donations, you name it. While keeping our identity private. America's history of protecting anonymous speech goes as far back as those very contested discussions which Darcy mentioned. Thomas Paine threw gas on the fire of the American Revolution with his anonymously written common sense. Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay in arguing for the ratification of their drafted constitution for this new nation wrote the Federalist Papers anonymously under the pseudonym of Publius. And someone then anonymously wrote a rebuttal under the name of the Federal Farmer. We still don't know who did it. The Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that the right to anonymous speech is protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And yet, there is a movement afoot to force the disclosure of donors to nonprofits. Several states have had ballot measures to do it, and South Dakota, Missouri, and Washington have passed it. Think about uh, individuals who live a relatively quiet and shy and retiring life, and if these kind of trends continue, they're going to have to report their personal name, address, 
uh, perhaps their phone number and the amount they gave to all the different nonprofit causes to the government and then have it be publicly reported. Imagine the wackos that can go mine that data and start showing up and knocking on your door. I don't think we want an America where participation in democracy is oppressed because of public reporting of private giving. I think it's an outrage and against the very founding of the country. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job, Alex. And to learn more about the importance of anonymous speech and to take action to defend it, go to unitedforprivacy.com. That's unitedforprivacy.com. And folks, if the government wants to know your name and why you're given to what you give it, you got to always ask yourself, why do they want to know? Who wants to know my name? And next thing, are they going to ask for a name when it comes to who we voted for, too? Big questions here. And we answer them here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we tell stories about all the big topics of life here. Love, work, faith, and of course, health. Here's our health editor, Jim Glassman, with our next look at healthcare in America. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But that title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good, well, patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad, the system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even the basic things work or cost. The ugly, well... Some parts of the healthcare and government bureaucracies are comically absurd. You couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. We'll get into that later, but I promise you that there's more good than ugly. This What Happens When episode is what happens when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer and she's only 30 years old. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Stan Dye. Take it away, Stan. For all the things that have changed in America since 1980, the number one and number two causes of death have stayed exactly the same. And despite what cable news would have you believe, those chart toppers are not tropical infections or gun violence, and you know what? Not even evil clowns hiding in the woods. No, no, no. The first is heart disease, and the second is cancer. As I was looking around for cancer stories, I get the fun assignments around here. I bumped into a group called the Young Survival Coalition and a state leader named Julie Klasky. She wrote beautifully about her own fight against stage four metastatic breast cancer, a cancer that can be slowed but not cured, the kind of breast cancer that claims by far the most lives. More on that later. This is the sort of diagnosis that would send many people into doom and gloom mode, but not Julie. She wanted us to hear and share stories of young women fighting cancer. And within just a few days, 
Julie connected me with dozens of absolutely amazing ladies. Here's one of them. I'm Tori Geib. I am 30 years old. I live in Bell Fountain, Ohio. I actually grew up in Marion, Ohio. I graduated from Mount Vernon Nazarene University in 2009. I went on after that to go to Columbus State for culinary school and graduated in 2012. Tori then became a chef. And if you're lucky enough to have some chefs as friends, then you already know that they're all a bunch of workaholic maniacs who know how to have a good time. But just as Tori's career was taking off, this happened. I was 29, and it was a total fluke of how I found my lump. I actually was just sleeping and woke up and thought that I was laying on my cell phone. I was on my laying on my side. I usually don't lay on my right side, but reached over. My phone wasn't there, but I found something hard. So I got a little concerned, but I, I wanted to kind of make sure what was going on with that. So my mom is actually a nurse. I went and had her feel it because I was like, something just doesn't feel right. And I've, I've had some cysts in the past, so you know, you kind of talk yourself out of it, of anything being wrong, because you don't hear about people that are 30 years old or about to be 30 years old that have problems like breast cancer. No, you really don't. There are about 300,000 cases of breast cancer diagnosed per year in America. And the two most significant risk factors are biological sex and age. Women are at far higher risk than men. But guys, we're not in the clear. There are in fact 2,500 cases of male breast cancer diagnosed per year. But that's a whole different story. And like most cancers, risk increases with age. Tori's own grandmother had breast cancer. But it wasn't until well into her 60s. Now, Tori was nowhere near 60. But just in case... She went to her doctor to get everything checked out. I went in, saw my doctor that same day. That's one of the nice things about being in a small town. They can get you right in. She felt the area and said, you know, we we really need to get you in and get this checked out and, you know, get get these scans done and see what's going on. So my birthday was that coming up weekend, and I really was just like, oh, I don't want to go do anything medical. And if it comes back that it is something, I want to be at least able to enjoy my birthday. And they only did the scans on Mondays in my town. So they have comprehensive days where they'll do the scans and they'll do the biopsies all on the same day. So they they wanted to do it on March 4th, but I was going to Nashville for my birthday. So I asked, can we just do it the next week? And she said, yeah, that's fine. Um, Nobody was really expecting it to be anything. Or if it was, it was supposed to be very early. So, you know, putting it off a week just so I could you know, have my weekend and go on with my my normal for a little bit was just something I, I really needed at that time. So I went ahead, put it off just for a week and went in on March 7th. I had the scan done. They went ahead and actually did an ultrasound as well. And they they were concerned. Uh, the, the radiologist that was there was also concerned. And they, they said, you know, you're going to have to come back the next the next week. To go ahead and do a biopsy and my idea was why wait I'm already here I'm stressed out let's just get this done let's get it over with so they went ahead and made some calls I called my boss just to let know because I was going to have to be off for a couple days and they they went ahead did the the biopsy it takes a week to get back so I waited the week 
nerves were going, but they they were looking at things and they told me, you know, if it does come back as anything, you're young, it's going to be early stage, we caught it early, you're good, it looks really small, so there's, there's no way that it's anything major, you're good to go. I came back the next week on March 14th and they sat me down and told me that it did come back as breast cancer. Obviously, I, I was crushed. I cried. I still cry sometimes, but I, I just didn't know what to do. I felt completely hopeless, like everything in my world was just about to change. Because you see the images of the people with no hair and being sick and being emaciated, and it's, it's those thoughts that were going through my head. And when we come back, more of Tori's story, our What Happens When installment, more after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Tori Geib's story. She was doing great as a young chef, but then she found a lump, and her doctors told her it was probably early-stage cancer. Here's Stan with more of her story. After diagnosing Tori's lump as breast cancer, her doctors noticed something else. They said, you know, there is one other area we want to go ahead and biopsy that we saw the scans that was just really small that we just want to double check. And I was like, fine, let's go ahead and do it. So they went ahead and did that second biopsy and said that they were going to go ahead and send my information down to Stephanie Spielman, which is part of the James Cancer Hospital OSU. I got a call back about the second biopsy because we already knew I had cancer. So it wasn't necessarily a sit down conversation at that point. The type of breast cancer that that they said that I had, it was called invasive ductal carcinoma. They were expecting it to be really early. They're like, oh, you're, you're good, you're young. I ended up getting down to Stephanie Spielman on March 23rd and was seen by the doctor. Even then, it was very much, you caught this early, things weren't bad. They went ahead and scheduled me to meet with medical oncology too. And I've been having pain in my back for probably six months. I worked as a chef, so I would be looking large bags and boxes and cases. So I was used to having a little bit of back pain with that. But my medical oncologist is uh, Raquel Reinbold. She really wanted to just go ahead and do those scans just to kind of confirm what was going on in that area. So we went ahead during the meantime and scheduled kind of the the beginning stage things that you go through with breast cancer. So we scheduled getting a port placement because I was going to be having to do IV chemo just to kind of shrink the area, give it some good margins on the tumor. So we were going to go ahead and place the port and get, get the basic things done while we were waiting for these scans to come back. So we did the scan and it came back that it was showing I had a lesion on my spine. And she's like, well, you know, it's probably nothing but let's go ahead and biopsy it just to make sure what's going on there. So I went ahead and I, it was actually two days after I had my port placement for my chemo. I went in and they, they did a scan or did the biopsy on my spine. And a couple days later, I got a phone call. It came back that the cancer had metastasized to my spine. So what originally everyone was telling me, you know, it's early, you're good, you caught it, you're young, you're going to beat this, suddenly became a death sentence just because 
once it metastasizes, it's it's a whole different ballgame. There really is no such thing as a good news cancer diagnosis, but that word cancer still covers a very wide range of diseases and stages of disease that have very different outcomes. For example, breast cancer is actually very treatable when caught as stage zero or one, which is when the out-of-control cells are relatively few in number and have not spread. In fact, over a five-year period, women diagnosed and treated for stage zero or one breast cancer have survival rates that are indistinguishable from women who don't have cancer at all. But stage four, or metastatic breast cancer, is an entirely different animal. That's when breast cancer cells spread throughout the body and take root in new organs, wreaking havoc wherever they land. Remember that back pain Tori mentioned? Well, as she says, that's because there were breast cancer cells on her bones, turning those bones into Swiss cheese. Once a chef, always a chef. This type of cancer is currently incurable, meaning that even though there are treatments and drugs that can extend patients' lives by years, it is still a terminal diagnosis. Until the next great medical breakthrough, stage four breast cancer patients will die from the disease. It took a while for Tori's actual diagnosis to sink in. At the time, I think I was still kind of being a cheerleader with my attitude and very much, oh, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to beat this, I'll still be okay. But that was really before I learned about what what was going on in my body because with metastatic breast cancer, the average life expectancy is 18 to 24 months where most breast cancers in early stages are able to be treated or put into remission. There's no such thing as remission for stage four. So it, it was definitely heartbreaking, you know, going through all this and um, having those goals in life. Of, you know, I always wanted to be a mom and just not not having that option anymore because my my cancer is hormone positive. Which means that when the breast cancer cells are around hormones like estrogen and progesterone from the ovaries, they grow even faster. So they had to shut down all of my my ovaries so I'm not able to have kids. And we had to act so quickly because once they started getting in there and scanning and finding where all these places I had metastasis, it, it was just everywhere. Um, I actually have metastasis areas on my bones, my both of my lungs, my liver, and my kidney. And ironically, you hear a lot about breast cancer traveling through the lymphatic system and the lymph nodes. Mine isn't in my lymph nodes, my lymph nodes are fine. There's no inflammation. It's actually traveled through my blood. So it's a little bit different than some of the other types of breast cancers. And, you know, it, it was, it was a change of plan. That chemo port that I got, I, I wasn't going to be doing IV chemo anymore, which it was kind of a twofold thing because, you know, yeah, I was absolutely glad I wasn't going to be having to do IV chemo, but at the same time, not like this, not in the way that someone looks at you and tells you there's a good chance that you're not going to be here in three years. As Tori was struggling to come to terms with this devastating diagnosis, she had to help her loved ones do the same. It was very hard and having to tell my family and tell my friends and and even then um, just hearing from them 
being that cheerleader that I was before and trying to reach out to me and say, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. And really, it's it's not. It's not okay. And, you know, some sometimes those types of comments, you know, you, you want to put on the face for your friends and family. You want to be, you want to be happy and you don't want to be the quote unquote dying girl, but you, you want to project that you're okay to your friends and family. And of course, the struggle wasn't just emotional. I was having some pain in some different areas. Obviously my back, the, the primary area that they went ahead and scanned. Also my collarbone, I was having a lot of issues. So they went ahead and scanned those. They actually found I had a broken clavicle and my T12 in my spine, so in the middle of my back, that bone was actually crushed. Um, it was broken and crushed. So they went in and did a procedure in my back to stabilize that bone. And then for my, for my back and for my collarbone, we did radiation treatment. They were okay at first. Um, they, at first I was like, oh, this isn't bad. I don't see what everybody's talking about. I'm not having burns. It's, it's all right until they started working on my back with the radiation. Um, I did 20 treatments altogether of the two forms of radiation. And by the end of it, I, I was so nauseous. The, the nausea was horrible. I wasn't able to eat regular foods for almost two months. As if all of that weren't tough enough, Tori had to do one more thing. I've had to quit my job because I'm not allowed to lift anymore can't do more than five pounds so obviously lifting a 25 pound case to do foods is it's just not possible anymore and it was a lot of concessions on my pride because I was always a very hard worker I worked since I was 14 years old at least part-time somewhere and I was always very proud of that I was a hard worker and for me having to leave my job and go on to disability at the age of 30, I was just like, what the heck is going on? This this isn't me. This isn't the life that I, I wanted for myself or envisioned. And I went ahead and I, I conceded. I did what I needed to do because I wanted to get better. I mean, the, the best that I could be. And you're listening to Tori Geib. And this is our What Happens When series. And this 30-year-old, my goodness, what a voice, what courage. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about her saga. And for any of you who are suffering from cancer or have family who are or have had it, you're going to really want to hear the next segment. It's unusual. It's a story and a side of this story that you don't know and you've never heard. More after these messages. Tori Geib's story here. On our American stories. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why he had to go? I don't know. He wouldn't say. I said something wrong now. I lost. Yesterday, yeah, yeah, yeah. yesterday. 
And we're back with more of our healthcare series, What Happens When, and our health editor, Jim Glassman, always on top of these things and stand in the field uh, doing the groundwork. And this story is all about a young woman in Ohio named Tori Geib, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 30. She soon learned that she had the metastatic kind that spreads throughout the body and can quickly kill. Tori had to quit the chef job she loved, and you could hear the pain. That was probably the unkindest cut of all. And then she had to turn her full attention to herself and her health. Tori turned the same incredible drive that helped her to excel as a chef to fighting cancer. She and her medical team quickly went from radiation and surgery to ongoing drug therapy. They went ahead and put me on an aramase inhibitor, which some people call it a chemo pill. It's not really a, a chemo pill. It, it's different. But it, the, the medication that they put me on after all of the radiation, and I was feeling a little bit better. I had had progression in my cancer, so my, my meds had been progressing throughout my body. I've been having a lot more pain in my back and my ribs, and they put me on this new medication that had come out earlier in the year. And I actually just had my three-month scans this past month, and my disease is stable. So what that means is that during the time that I've been on the medication from scan to scan, the disease hasn't been spreading. It's kind of maintained where it is, and it's actually gotten smaller in some of the areas. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely thankful for that. I asked Tori to tell us more about these drugs that are keeping her stable. Now, they're not curing the disease, but they are buying time. Time for research and time for Tori to enjoy life. It's called Ibrance. I'm doing that in, a, in another pill called Letrozole. So I take those in combination, and because I'm hormone positive, it, it stops the hormones in my body, and I also get a shot in my belly every month of two different medications to kind of suppress everything and all my hormones and keep those in check. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's a lot of fatigue with it. The nice thing with the pill that I take is I don't get to, I don't lose my hair. So I've, I've been able to keep my hair, even the, the pink streak that I put in before I was, thought I was going to lose it to chemo. And I was like, oh, I'm going to lose it anyway. I'll put a little bit of pink in there. No, it, it, it's still there. So, but I mean, that's, it's not the worst thing. I'm, I'm good. I mean, there's a lot of fatigue with it. The Mets, they're painful, especially the bone Mets. They're very painful. But I started into palliative care a couple months ago, and they finally got me on a good pain control management. And it's, it's really been helping. With a combination of drugs keeping her cancer in check and her pain at a manageable level, Tori next had to struggle with massive government and healthcare bureaucracies. Because while the medical team and drugs were amazing, miraculous even, someone needed to pay for them. Here's Tori taking us back to an almost unbelievable conversation with a lady while trying to get onto Medicaid. I'm sitting across a desk talking to this woman, and she, she was in tears saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing that I can do for you. I wish there was. With being off of work as long as I had been, on disability, I end up actually losing my health insurance coverage. And because of where I fell, because of my disability paying 60% of my former wages, I actually didn't qualify for any type of 
financial assistance for a lot of different places or with uh, Medicaid or any of those programs. And in my state, there's a program for breast and cervical cancer patients that helps them if they've been denied for Medicaid. It's kind of a little extra cushion. And I was denied for it, even though I have stage four breast cancer, because I'm under the age of when they consider breast cancer to be a problem. They don't cover anyone under the age of 40 for any reason, even if they have breast cancer. And for me, it was just like, what the heck? Because, you know, if, if I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm, I have stage four breast cancer and I can't get help from a breast cancer program because I'm not old enough. It, it was just crazy to me. It, it was just, it was very discouraging because all I could think about was how am I going to pay for my, my treatments? Because I didn't find out in a letter from my insurance that I had been dropped. I actually had, my, my medication was supposed to come to me through the mail. It's one of the, the mail pharmacies. And uh, I, I didn't get my prescription in the mail. And I called the pharmacy. I said, hey, um, I just wanted to check and make sure because I didn't get my eye brands today. And they said, well, it, you don't have insurance and we can't send you the medication without payment. And I was just like, well, how much is it? And that's when they told me it'll be a little over 10000 for the month. And my heart just fell to my stomach. Like, I, I don't know what to do. And all I could do is I called my doctor's office crying and saying, I don't know what to do. Can what Do you, do you guys know of anything I can do? And within an hour, I had a list of resources in my email saying, you try this, we'll try this, we'll meet in the middle. Because I knew that, you know, I wanted to be a participant in this. I wanted to work to, to find something. And, and having that panic of, oh my God, I'm not going to have my medication. You know, what if I'm a week off of my medication and my cancer progresses? Because that's a fear. If you go off your medication, it progresses and you can't go back on the medication. It's like, what's next? And, and it's terrifying. There were a lot of tears that week, just trying to figure things out and, and knowing that the the insurance had actually cut off three weeks prior to when I got that medication, but that was the first thing that I had gotten that was billed to the, to the insurance that I would have received right away and not just gotten a bill in the mail from a hospital. Actually, during the time that my insurance had been cut, that I wasn't aware of it, I had a hospital stay for four days. And I looked on my account online after they told me that that had been denied. And I had $24,000 in medical bills. So there she was, a whopping 20 bucks a month too wealthy to get help from Medicaid and too young to get help from the Ohio State program. Hey, uh, did anybody copy the cancer on that memo? She was still facing tens of thousands of dollars in bills for life-saving drugs and care. And really, who among us could casually write a check for that amount out of pocket? Having worked and worked hard since childhood, Tori hated the very idea of a handout. But she knew that there's such a thing as misplaced pride. She called her doctor's office and played face-up poker. Tori explained her financial situation fully and honestly, and the great folks at the clinic immediately understood. They told Tori that drug companies have financial assistance programs exactly to help folks like her. 
And since that $10,000 a month life-saving iBrands is a Pfizer product, start with them. Their assistance program is called Pathways. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Pathways, and we're going to hear about Tori Guy, but my goodness, I know you're already in love with her because we are here. And what a story and what a storyteller. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do, including our What Happens When segments. More often than not, they're a full hour because these are the stories that happen to all of our lives. This labyrinth that we get caught up in with these rules that make no sense to anybody. Very complicated. But what a beautiful story this is. And when we come back more with Tori Geib here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're getting to the last part of this incredible story of a young woman diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, the kind that kills. Tori Geib had to swallow her pride and stop working as the cancer spread through her body, but then Medicaid wouldn't help her because she made $20 too much a month, and an Ohio State program turned her down for being too young. Now let's go back to Tori, taking us to the moment when she called the drug company itself for help. They make the product, keeping her cancer in check. But would they help with the mounting bills? When I applied through Pfizer Pathways, it was a really quick process. It was really humbling to to be able to call. And they were so amazing. They were so nice. It wasn't... Oh, another person calling to get something for free. It wasn't like that at all. They know that people that are calling are needing help, and you're already going through a tough time. They're not trying to make it harder on you. They were so kind, and they answered the questions that I had. And even when I said, I don't know if I'm going to qualify for this, they were encouraging, and they said, well, let's try. Let's see what we can do for you. And I appreciated that so much. I've had places that I've applied for for assistance that... It it wasn't the case, and it was really difficult and really hard. When I applied for one of the programs, I got a letter back that said, um, well, it looks like you qualify for Medicaid, so, you know, apply through Medicaid and see what they can do for you. And it was so frustrating because I had sent papers to them saying that I had been denied. And it's it's because my income was so close to qualifying. It was was really, it was hard, and I had to go through that 
burden of proof with all of these different places. But I would say out of any of the ones that I worked with, finding help or finding assistance for prescription medications, Pfizer was absolutely amazing helping. From the moment that Tori realized that her drugs were being held up because she did not have the insurance to pay for it, to getting all of this worked out only a week and a half passed. And Pfizer wasn't the only one that answered Tori's call. Her medical team was at Ohio State University, and OSU has a program to help pay the bills of patients needing a hand. Tori also spoke glowingly about her local Logan County, Ohio, Cancer Society. I know the the person at the Cancer Society that I call, and her name is Jane, and I, I'll call her, and they, they help with my prescriptions that go through my pharmacy here locally. My my clinic is an hour away from my home. They give me gift cards for to help cover my travel expenses for each time that I go down there. I mean, it's it's amazing the type of things that are out there that can really help you because things add up. I mean, when you're going to treatment, when I was doing radiation, I was going an hour each way, five days a week. And that adds up in gas, especially when you're not working. So having programs out there that will help you cover those costs, it's it's amazing. And it's it's really it's really humbling and it makes you appreciate all of these different local fundraisers and these organizations that are out there. American philanthropy working exactly as it should. So what's Tori going through now? The treatment that I'm on is keeping me stable. So for right now, it's working and it's doing a good job. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's keeping the cancer where it is. It's not letting the cancer grow outside of these areas. It, it pretty much, it's put a pause button on the cancer. But pause is not stop. So eventually your body will learn how to get around these different medications and, and you develop immunities. So they have to change up your treatments. Obviously, the goal is to try to be on the treatment as long as you can for each different type of treatment. We do scans every three months to just make sure medication's still working. We'll, we'll keep fighting this until we get to a point where the treatment's not working anymore. And then at that point, we'll hope, hopefully there'll be something out there by that point. But um, it's, it's scary when you see your friends that are, you know, 35 and under. When you see 19-year-olds getting this disease, when you see, you know, my, my friend that's 33 years old that's on hospice right now that has two kids, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And we, we need more. We need more research. And we need more people that are advocating for research and donating to research and not just donating to awareness. I think, I think at this point, we're, we're very aware that it exists. It's, it's time to stop putting so much money towards awareness and putting more money towards research and finding the cures for this disease so that we don't have 10,000 people dying from this disease a year. I mean, it's, it's crazy, and it's, it's heartbreaking, and we, we, we need better. We need to get this and get it under control. Tori was originally diagnosed with cancer two weeks after her 30th birthday in 2016. When we talked later that year, she had nine fractures from the breast cancer cells spreading onto her bones. A few months later, that number had almost doubled. But the good news is that Tori is still stable on Ibrands. Her cancer has not spread. And all this time, researchers have been hard at work 
trying to find more pause buttons to slow cancer. And of course, the real goal, to find the stop button. She's finding new ways to manage pain, and she's still living a very challenging life very well. There's there's no point in sitting around and feeling sorry for myself. Are there days where I'm like, why did this happen to me? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there, there are definitely those times where I'm like, this sucks. I, I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I don't want to have cancer today. And, and there are some days where I tell my family or my friends that I'm with, I'm like, today, we're not allowed to talk about cancer. You know, today's a no cancer day. And, you know, so if they respect the rules, they get to hang out. If not, they're out for the day. <laughs> but, but you gotta, you have to set boundaries and sitting around and, and crying and feeling sorry for myself isn't helping me get better. And if it comes down to me only being here for three years, which is the average lifespan for a metastatic person, I don't want my friends and family to look back at those three years with me and say that I was down all the time. I was depressed all the time. I want to be like, she lived. She did everything she could do and more. And she lived. Like, that's what I want to be known for. And thank you for that. As always, Dan, great work. And Tori, what a voice. What a lady. And thanks, by the way, to Jane at the local cancer club, the doctors, the nurses, and thanks, too, to the folks at Pfizer. What a story, and what a citizen. What a citizen of this country, and what a generous citizen, and just didn't know that story. And we bring on now Jim Glassman, our health editor. And Jim, I did not know that the patient assistant programs that drug companies like Pfizer have account for 10 of the largest 15 U.S. charities in this country and provided $6.5 billion of support in 2014 alone. Talk about that. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I mean, mean, uh, you take a company like Pfizer, its patient assistance program shelled out last year about $700 million to help patients. And, and the reason for these things existing, these, these foundations, is the structure of insurance programs in the United States. Now, I realize Tory kind of fell in between the cracks, but there are a lot of people with commercial insurance that still have to pay many thousands of dollars a month for their drugs if it were not for these foundations. And, you know, insurance companies really ought to be insuring people against the worst calamities not to pay for the $10 that you have to that you would pay for a generic statin drug. It's kind of ridiculous the way these things are structured. But that's the truth. And that's what we worry about, Jim. We all worry about that catastrophic bill. We don't Absolutely. worry about the 10 bucks and the 50 bucks. That's not why I have insurance. Let's talk about the the prospects for for Tory. We were talking off break that this uh, this drug may buy her 10 months it might buy her 12 months, maybe a little more. And a lot of people say, oh, 10 months, 12 months, is it worth it? But Jim, all the research is happening in this space. Talk about that. So Tori mentioned letrozole, and a study found that with letrozole alone, the progression-free survival, that is, where the disease doesn't get any worse, is 10 months. But with Ibrantz combined with letrozole, it's 20 months. So you're basically buying an extra 10 months. And during that time, tremendous strides are being made in oncology, on research on cancer drugs. And we're in a golden age of oncology right now. We're going to see things in the next few years that you just would not believe. And so I think that thanks to Ibrance and other drugs like it, Tori really has a chance where previously she might not have, might have had any kind of chance. And that's the good news, that scientists are at work right now in our nation's drug companies, the NIH, all over the country at universities. And Jim, thanks as always for 
trying to clear up some things and bringing us stories like this. This was a this was a powerful one, Jim. And Jim Glassman is who we're talking to. He's our health editor here at Our American Stories. Our What Happens When series today featured Tori Geib and What Happens When You Get Diagnosed with Cancer at the Age of 30. Thanks for all you do, Jim. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to capture all that we do on this subject, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look for our What Happens When series. And every once in a while, every couple of weeks, we're going to be giving you another hour and another hour to try and get you to understand and teach you a little bit more about our complicated, complicated health care system. 